Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. This is episode 108. Cynthia is off this week, but if you're new to the program, welcome. Every episode, we get to talk to amazing people in the entrepreneurial community, and this week is no exception. We get to talk to a friend of mine that I've known for a long time, Fred Wellman, now yeah. of the Lincoln Project, but now you were with Scout Comms, and that's how I know you, but welcome yep. to the show, sir. Oh, it's great to be here. Great to catch up again. Dude, we were just talking before we started recording. It's been a minute. It's been a minute since yeah. we've seen each other. <laughs> Thanks, COVID. Well, it's been weird. I don't know. It's been a weird. I don't know if you guys noticed anything weird going on, but it's been weird. Yeah, it's been it's been a, to say the least a weird time. You know, I you know I know you, and and from the ecosystem that we both sort of intersect in, I've known yep. you for quite a long time. But my listeners may not know who Fred Wellman is, so let's kind of rewind the tape. Let's talk a little bit about Fred and what prompted you to get in the military. You were at West Point. Like, what yep. prompted you to get into the Army? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I grew up right here. I'm, I'm back in St. Louis now. I grew up in outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, my uh, my family has a long military history. We, we actually found we, we go all the way back to before the Revolution, you know, oh, early, you know 1640s and, and uh, French and Indian War. So, you know, Revolutionary War, Minutemen. So there's a long history of military service in my family. My father was a Marine in World War II. Wow. Uh, so I was kind of raised in that military mindset. Uh, I looked at the academies. Um, I was looking at the Air Force Academy as a young guy in 1983. And uh, they, you know, I, I wasn't that smart as a, <laughs> I was more of a sports guy. So, uh, but West Point offered, I loved West Point because you could go there, you could major whatever you wanted to major in. Uh, it was, it was just a great opportunity. So I jumped on West Point, miraculously got in, I'm still kind of amazed by that. Came out of West Point. I, I always wanted to fly growing up. And, uh, and so I, I studied real hard the last couple of years I was there. I, I, I did really well, f- finished strong, luckily. And uh, I became an aviator coming out of West Point. So I was flying. Um, I, I picked a scout helicopters. And I was at Fort Rucker, Alabama. They were picking an aircraft. And, uh, and the, the rest is uh, 22 years of service. When you, when you got to the academy, because that, that, that process to get in is a complicated one. And it's right. very, very competitive. Yeah. You, you said you were surprised you got in there, but... What do you think was the tipping point? What do you think actually got you into West Point? Oh, I actually know it was it, West Point's interesting, at least, and it still is that way in many ways. The, the the way I got in West Point and the military academies don't necessarily look just for that straight academic grade. They they're looking for the well-rounded individual. In the end, the military academy's job is to create officers for the United States military. So they're looking for more than just somebody who's a, who can really study hard. And for me, you know, I'd been a state champion swimmer. I'd been president of a class or whatever. I had mm-hmm. you know started my own nonprofit as a, as a high school kid. Wow. On top of getting pretty decent grades, I mean, I got you know bees mm-hmm. um but i test well thankfully i did really well on the sat <laughs> and uh but that was what was, i think that's what west point looks for they look for that that we call the whole you call the whole man the yeah. whole person um so that well-roundedness and and i i struggled academically when i first got there it was a, it was a hill to climb i uh i really struggled my first couple of years i almost failed out um but then i kind of found my footing and i got into my degree field international relations uh once i got into my degree i, I just fell in love with the the academic environment that i was in and and, and thrived those last couple of years but 
But West Point's a unique place for that. It, you don't just have to be book smart necessarily. Yeah. Um, you can be you can be a whole person. So I'm very fortunate. Yeah. What if anything surprised you once you got there? Did anything surprise you about being well, all there? All the yelling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I, uh, I damn near quit, and uh, I found the letter. I was kind of whining like like all those young privates do in basic training, and uh, I was a cadet. And uh, I actually wrote my uh, first call I had with my parents. I was like, "Yeah, you know, get me the hell out of here!" All the screaming and yelling and the idiocy. And my dad wrote like the world's harshest. He wrote, he wrote this harsh, harsh mm. letter. I found it the other day. He, he's pa- he passed me 2010, mm. and it was basically you know, you know snap out of it, get your get your shit together. <laughs> it was like the the toughest letter. I can't, I kept it for years. Um, and so, you know, it was funny. And I remember very clearly one of my basic training squad leaders pulled me aside. He goes, you know, the thing about you is you're, you're an eminently nice guy and, and this is a new environment for you. Uh, but if you figure out how to work it, how to, how to survive in this environment of, of tough discipline and, and, and the pressure they put on you, um, you could actually thrive here. And I was like, yeah, right. I quit. And I used to joke that the only reason I graduated from West Point is I kept putting off the date I was going to quit. You know? <laughs> you know what? Screw it. I'm quitting the end of this semester. Like, oh, well, now I got a girlfriend. I'll wait till next semester. <laughs> and then I graduated. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of a place. It, not everybody, um, you know, I, West Point was a very formative time for me. Obviously I learned a lot. Uh, I'm not one of those guys who's obsessed with it. I, I always saw those schools and those milestones as a means to an end. For me, it really was about getting that commission. Uh, I worked very hard. Um, everything is about your class rank there. And I was, I worked very hard to get into aviation branch. Um, luckily I didn't study much. My eyes didn't go bad and, you know, I was able to pass the flight physical, but, but it was always like a means to getting in that cockpit and then the cockpit led to other things. So, um, um, it was, you know, really, it's a, it's a great school. It's a wonderful experience. It's nothing else like it in the world, I think. Um, and I'm, I'm just really fortunate to get essentially an Ivy League education as a kid from Kirkwood, Missouri. Um, and I thank the taxpayers that paid for it. <laughs> when, when you got out, when you were deployed and you, you got into flight school and you right. ended up out, like what, where did you go? What was your experience like? So I, I, I picked uh, Air Scouts, uh, little OH-58 Charlie uh, Scout helicopters. Um it's a funny story. I was driving to work one day and we passed the airfield. There was 58s and Apaches there. And, um, I, uh, I saw the 50s. I'd never really seen an OH-58 before mm. and they're squat little things and, uh, kind of, you know, tiny. Uh, and I said to my buddy is, is, crude story but it's okay <laughs> and i said i said what is that he goes those, those are the scouts those are the oh wow that's bad i says yeah you know it's a single pilot aircraft but it has two seats do you know why i said no why does it have two seats he goes well one's for the pilot and one's for his balls and <laughs> i said wow. oh i'm gonna fly that <laughs> and, uh, and of course later, later we had fields the uh, 58 pilots and they were they were ballsy too um and it's just a cool cool sexy little mission of sneaking up on bad guys and, and learning to be stealthy and, and seeing what nobody else sees and so i really fell in love with that mission so i flew scouts ended up my first assignment i actually volunteered to go to korea uh, where you really learn to hone your skills as an aviator because it's tough flying over there mm-hmm. the mountains and everything else the weather changes very quickly um so i became a really good pilot i came back to the states um joined the cavalry first at the 24th id in savannah mm-hmm. and then i got moved to the apache battalion when one of their guys got promoted too soon and uh that's who I deployed to Desert Shield with, uh, was first the 24th attack at Apache Battalion with the 24th ID. And, of course, we did the big left hook, um, ended up fighting the last battle of, of uh, Desert Storm, uh, a well, fairly well-known battle called the Causeway Battle, where the Hammurabi Republican Guard ran into our guys at the end of the war there, and we, we, we gave them something to think about. So it was really a you know, unique experience seeing the world from the front seat of a helicopter. Um, you know, I, I went to Campbell. I went to Hawaii. 
Um, really some remarkable places to be sitting in a front seat of a helicopter. And I never lost the thing that was wonderful about the army. And I do miss the most is, uh, I was still always remember I was that kid from Missouri. Um, you know, just some kid from Kirkwood, Missouri, who, you know, grew up thinking about the world, not really seeing it much. We used to go to every year we drive the New Jersey shore to go to vacation. <laughs> you know, that was the extent of my world is back yeah. and forth to Jersey. Wow. And, you know, I remember I was a staff officer later worked for general Franks and we were, tra- we were training with the Egyptians and I'm standing in the pyramids and, you know, flying flying helicopters through the Saudi Arabian desert, or um, a Blackhawk above the the Kerbal, uh, the mountains around Erbil. Um, I, I don't think I ever really lost that sense of wonder for for where I had that opportunity to be as a young man, as an American. Mm-hmm. So that's probably one of the wonderful, most wonderful things I got out of the military was a, a sense of the world uh, and a sense of wonder at what that is. It, it's amazing. I. I... I was in the Navy, so obviously I get to go to, yeah. you know, I went through 30 different countries in yeah. just the short time I was in. Um, but it really contextualizes for you the world when you go to places like Eritrea or right. Djibouti, Africa, or right. even Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, like all those places. You don't you don't realize it. And I was young, too. I, I went in the military when I was 17. Um, my mom actually, I, I heard this story recently, actually, my mom signed away her rights as a parent to the Navy. <laughs> the Navy was my guardian. Yeah. From 17, I went in 17 as well. Yeah. And so, <laughs> Same thing. But my mom couldn't sign that paperwork fast enough. So I got, <laughs> I got out before I was 21 and, yeah. and, you know, seeing all of that stuff really puts it into perspective for, so that when you get home, I don't know about you were an officer, so probably a different perspective, but I was enlisted. And so when I got home, just drinking out of a glass, like a glass, was a huge deal to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's funny. You know, my thing is, you'll laugh, is uh, even ever since Korea, uh, I get stuck in grocery stores. It, it drives every person I've ever been involved with romantically crazy because I go into grocery stores like, whoa. <laughs> so much shit here <laughs> it's yeah. so cool you know i mean i yeah. still do it to this day i'm in my 50s really? you know, like uh, you know you come, come back from deployment you know you get to iraq for a year you're like oh man you know look, look at all the stuff i mean i get i would get vapor lock trying to decide what to eat because there's just so much to choose from. It's, i don't know what it is but it, it really is that scene and everybody relates to it that yeah. scene in the hurt locker remember the last scene in the hurt locker oh yeah yeah it's the most realistic scene the entire movie is jack beyond belief but that final <laughs> scene where he goes into the he's back in deployment and he's standing there in the grocery store like it's like uh, where do i start you know and that yeah. really I, I every veteran i taught is like yes that's that's me <laughs> and, uh, totally. i did it here i just moved to st louis i spent like an hour in deerberg's like well it's just reconning it like there's so much stuff here and didn't buy shit that's but, hilarious uh, i don't know sorry if i curse i apologize <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a podcast <laughs> so we're good um yeah. oh, it's fun you know it's, it's a unique thing it's a perspective you walk away with those are little things you don't even think about you're picking up yeah uh, in that career field what was the most memorable experience you had while you were in the military Oh, that's a tough memory. Uh, there's just so many. Uh, you know, the, the you know, I had a weird career because you know, I did the piloting thing, and that career was remarkable. I, I was a I was a Cobra Company commander uh, in Hawaii, H uh, one Cobras, and flying over the ocean under night vision goggles and seeing whales breach, you know, in front of your helicopter. I mean, you know, this, the the wonders of the world. That was amazing. But then later. As a public affairs officer, um, I switched over to public affairs after OIF one. General Petraeus decided I should be a spokesman, and and then I got to see a totally different world, which was this this larger world of uh, you know escorting senior politicians and meeting the president, and, you know, talking briefing the president of the United States, or you know, I mean, I remember sitting in one meeting. Uh, with General Dempsey in, in Baghdad, and it was the first time Rumsfeld had come and actually like spent the night. And he brought Wolfowitz, he brought all the architects of the Iraq War, and 
And we went down there and, and, and John Dempsey said, Hey, sh- come, come with me. If the media shows up, you can handle them. And there was no media, of course. And he goes, Oh, I want you to sit in the meeting. And it was me and one other Lieutenant Colonel. And it was all generals <laughs> and all, nobody below the rank of like assistant secretary of defense. And I'm saying that, and, and the guy next to me, another Lieutenant Colonel, I look at you like, what the F, you know, <laughs> you know why are we, and, and you're, and you're, and you're witnessing history. And, and wow. that, that was the really cool thing about that second, that latter part of my career was I truly was in the front seat to witness history. Um, and I'm still doing it, luckily. But uh, that was such that's that's one of the unique things about my career is I was able to see the world in the front seat of the helicopter, and then see the world in the front seat of uh, uh, see the, you know, the larger world of, of the front seat of a, a office, if you will. But it was just really interesting life. When you decided you were going to get out, what was that conversation for yourself? How did well, you prep for, yourself for like I'm I'm ready? It's time. I, I quit twice. I, the first time didn't take. So I, I, at, at the 13 year mark, we were living in Georgia outside of Atlanta, um, really fell in love with it. Um, the, 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 the civilian mark was booming. I, I'm one of those guys. Um, it was another piece of advice I got at West Point for one of my, my senior officers. He, and he, I said, again, remember I kind of told you I didn't fit in at West Point. Right. 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 And, and that's quite of the theme. The theme of my career is I didn't quite fit in. Um, and he, and he pulled me aside and he said to me, he says, the thing about the army, Fred is, you could have an entire career and never really fit in. Hmm. You could have a successful career. You could make a lieutenant colonel like 20 years, not quite fitting in because the army is big enough. It's a big enough organization that you could find a place for yourself within that, that universe. And I remember that. And it was so true. And I, I used to joke that I had, I had, I had one out of three of my bosses just loved me. And luckily those guys are named like Petraeus or Dempsey, <laughs> you know, but, yeah, yeah. but the others, cause I was always that guy in the room saying, well, wait a minute, I know we've been doing this for 200 years. Uh, but is there a better way? <laughs> you know, so so at the 13 year mark, I was I was frustrated with where I was. The assignment I was in was a frustrating assignment. Um, the the larger world was calling me. My family was settled in a beautiful little town called Peachtree City, Georgia. Um, and so I made the decision to go ahead and punch out and join the reserves. Uh, and that was a little gutting. I remember sitting by the side of a lake on the way home from work, and my and my my former wife calling like, "Hey, you're gonna come home? Like, I'm just gonna sit this lake and just kind of contemplate." <laughs> uh, but I joined the reserves at the last minute. Uh, I got involved in politics. Of course, I was running for mayor of Peachtree City itself, and when 9/11 hit, mm-hmm. and um, and I hadn't done my drill because of I was running for mayor, and I knew I was going to get called. So I called my unit and said, "Hey, if you need guys, I'm certainly willing to do that." And they 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 mobilized me that night. I got mobilized that very night. Holy and uh, in the headquarters of Forces Command in Atlanta, and uh, never went off. I just went ahead and stayed. I did eight more years in the army after that, wow. uh, ten nine years, but. The second time it was, you know, I, I kind of knew coming back with the break in service that as an officer, I probably wouldn't be a battalion commander or a brigade commander. I wasn't going to be a general. Yeah, you know, I had a kind of a, you know, you take a, what they call a break in service that you take that fast track and get off it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had, a, and that's one of the reasons I had to pick when, when General Petraeus said I should be a PAO. I was like, that's a usable job skill, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so I had kind of reached, I'd, I'd done my third combat tour. I came back from that third tour. I, I had PTSD. I didn't know it at the time. Sure. Um, but I, I mean, I did, uh, you know, you know, it is with us. I, I, I knew I did, but yeah. I was in denial. Um, well, that and we didn't really have a way to categorize it. Yeah. Now, even in 2008, I mean, I mean yeah. we kind of talked about it, but you know, I, I knew I was struggling with depression. I was, I was really struggling with suicidal ideations. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife was fed up with my stuff. And mm-hmm. um, so I came back from that third tour and I was like, yeah, I'm kind of done. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, mental health was burned out. I was burned out. The career was frustrating. Um, you know, the politics of it all was making me crazy. Um, so I came back to that third tour in 2008 and I said, yeah, I'm pretty much done. That's it. Mm. You know, I'd gone to, uh, I had the incredible experience of going to Harvard for graduate school as General Petraeus' idea and, uh, the army let me go. And then, so they sent me to Harvard. I get a full ride scholarship to Harvard for a year, graduate with honors, which is bizarre. Um, 
And then the army refuses to give me an assignment <laughs> that like uses the master's degree, like literally yeah. gave me a assignment that didn't require a master's degree. I'm like, look, I owe you. And literally I, I left the army the day I could because they just simply refused to, um, you know, assign. You know, it, it was just, again, I think, I think the love affair had broken down at that point, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it was just tired. You know, you, you, after three combat tours, I've been gone every year for six, seven years at that point. Um, yeah, 2003, 2005, 2008. Um, my daughter had gone to four different high schools. Oh, wow. Um, my kids, I'd missed it all. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and then I saw Fulberg colonels who hadn't deployed at all. I, I, I came back early for my last tour, which is a story. Uh, it's a whole story. And, um, that's with my PTSD. And I actually got ripped the, the general in charge of army public affairs at the time, uh, actually like chewed me out because I was replaced by a Fulberg colonel. I'd been filling a, a bird colonel slot. And he said, well, you know, he's going to miss his son's senior year of high school mm -hmm. football. And I'm like, okay, but he's never deployed, sir. It's 2008. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, right. we're seven years into the war. Yeah, but you were screwed. I said, sir, I missed my entire family's entire school years for three years. You know, I, I can't believe I'm being chewed out because this guy doesn't get, you know, dismissing senior year of high school. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? And, and at that point, I was like, all right, I, this is ridiculous. I mean, there's, yeah. there's colonels running on the Pentagon without combat patches. And there's junior guys with their fourth um, enough's enough. So yeah. it was, it wasn't a hard decision. I, I had 22 years at that point. So I had the retirement check, which was nice. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a certain privilege that goes with that. And that, that goes to our, our entrepreneurship discussion later. Which I did have that privilege. I had healthcare. I had a little bit of money coming in, right. um, that, that allowed me to make that transition very comfortably. Yeah. Let's talk about that transition. You, you did some time doing different communications jobs, I did. Yeah. yeah but, thanks but for then, remembering. Yeah. But then at, yeah. at some point you're like, all right, I'm going to go about this on my own. Talk about that decision to, oh. to go out on your own. Like what I was, wish it was, I wish it was heroic, but it <laughs> or planned. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I think we talked about this one yeah. time when you were, when you were doing entrepreneurship training as yeah, I wish I, I wish I'd gone to this training. Uh, <laughs> I, I used to teach at these entrepreneurship courses and I was like, wow, I wish I'd really known this stuff before I did it. For right. me, I, I got out of the army that last time I got a great, I got a, a good paying job, a decent job, um, at, uh, a, a small firm in, in DC, um, some struggles with the CEO and I just, just clashes again, you know, sure. like Fred Wellman, I love him or you hate him. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I was doing good work, but it was just a frustrating deal. So I, I left at 11, about 11 months after I re retired, which is 45, we did a survey in 2014 that at that time, the, we surveyed 2000 veterans and 45% of veterans left their first job within a year. Mm -hmm. uh, I was one of those 45%. And so I kind of struck out thinking, oh, you know who I am? I'm a Harvard grad, West Point grad, uh, you know, and nobody was hired. It was 2008 <laughs> or 10, the, the backside of the recession. Yeah. Uh, I spent about 30 days looking for a job. I was impatient as hell. And I'd interviewed with a guy up at DC at a firm. And the COO was a, actually a veteran himself, Israeli veteran of all things. Oh, wow. And, and, we, our, um, and a pilot himself. So most of our interview was inappropriate language and war stories. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember the C the CEO the CEO came in like what are you guys doing I'm like oh, get the f out of here <laughs> um, you know so I walk out and he says to me he goes you know, he says let me he goes what are you gonna you know what do you want to do what do you want to be in your grow up I was like well you know I'd love to join a good firm like yours rise up be a partner maybe take over someday and uh, he says I will tell you what you know we are we are dorking around <laughs> he was so honest he goes look you know we're gonna drag this out for a month because we're waiting for some money to come in and I said oh that's honest he goes yeah he goes why don't you start your own firm. I said, dude, I, I was in the army for 22 years. I was in a 
not that great. And you know, small firm for a year. I don't even know what right looks like to start a company. Right. And he looks me dead in the eye and says, let me tell you a secret. None of us know what the fuck we're doing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. You know, seriously. He says, you know, we didn't know when we started this, we didn't expect to be 45 employees and multi-million-dollar company in 10 years, but here we are. That's amazing. You're a smart guy. You know, people figure it out. I was like, oh, okay. And that's, that's such an army thing, right? You jump in, you figure it out. I was 101st Airborne for most of my career. There's that funny, there's that scene in Band of Brothers. It's so telling. Remember Jimmy, Jimmy Fallon and his weird, his weird cameo in Band of Brothers pulls up in a Jeep as they're getting ready to go into Bastogne. And he says, you know, you, you gotta be careful, Lieutenant, you're, or Captain, you're gonna be surrounded. He goes, we're the son, we're the airborne. We're supposed to be surrounded. <laughs> you know, and that's that's the attitude, right? We'll jump yeah. in and figure it out, right? Yeah, and yeah. uh and we're flying or parachute in or helicopter in. Uh, and that's what I did. So I went home and on my way home, I came up with the name Scout Comms. I was a scout and then I did comms. Um, it was available on all the internet channels and, and, and plays, you know, and, uh, I grabbed all, I grabbed Twitter and all of them up. And uh, by the time I got home, I said to my then ex, now, now ex-wife, I said, I'm going to start a company. She's great. Uh, I'll make you an office. And she carved out an office in the basement and we went that's to amazing. work and, and, and that's it. I didn't have any training. I, I, I joke. I was so broke. I had, um, I think I had $270 in the bag at the time. And I remember that number specifically because I called a friend of mine who was a designer. I said, look, I need a website and a logo and all that stuff. He goes, great. I said, I don't have hardly any money though. He's like, well, what do you guys? I think 270 bucks. He goes, oh, that's amazing. That's my rate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, that's hilarious. You know, and I'd hooked him up at my previous firm and he, you know, and that's how business is, right? You, yeah. you have these favorite you have people that are just trusted partners and that's that's so for his you know one one sixteenth of his normal rate he, he built me a logo and a website and uh and off and running and uh i got real lucky i just started dialing from business um and i i i a true story none of this veterans training existed then we're talking 2010 the ivmf yep. and, and what you do um so i literally went to the stafford county public library and checked out how to start a business for dummies and uh and <laughs> didn't even buy it I, I i rented it and uh mm-hmm. that's how i did it and uh, you know, Scout Comms um, was in business almost ten years, uh, yeah. which, which by many measures is pretty darn successful. Yeah. Um, you know, but it was it was a hell of a start. How did you know who your customer was going to be? I mean, you said you, yourself, you went out, you just kind of dialed for business and went out there and pushed your network. But if you had yeah. to look at who your ideal customer was, who yeah. who would that be? That's a great question. And so, you know, I had a great mentor, a guy named Fred Thompson, who uh, is a titan of the PR industry. If if you know the industry, actually, you'd know it. If you remember that, remember the Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? Yeah. 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 That was his commercial. That oh, was nice. his, uh, you know, so he's really, a, a, and he took me under his wing. It was just, long, you know, through a friend of a friend. And, and so Fred was very good at sitting down with me and I said, well, I don't want, I don't want to do defense or military. So he goes, yeah, well, too bad. That's what you're going to do. He was, he was just great. Yeah. That, that sounds great Fred. except that's your, that's your resume. So right. deal with it. Like, yes, sir. And so he said, I think your specialty, and it's funny to be honest with you, you know, here we are 10, 15 years later or whatever, and, or 12 years later, and I'm basically doing the same thing, which is, uh, my talent at the time was I was very good, especially as being a public affairs officer, at translating military or defense language to the larger public view. Right. And so what we did was we reached out to major public relations firms in D.C. saying, look, I see you're doing defense work. I see you're doing government work. I, and and we knew then that less than like 2% or some ridiculously low number of PR industry had any veteran experience. And I could be your guy who understands that language. I'll give you an example. Edelman, the world's largest public relations firm, the privately held public relations firm. They went on a hiring binge 
Uh, and from their 1,600 worldwide employees, they ended up hiring six veterans. <laughs> you know, that's because that's it's just there's just not that many in that industry, right? Because right. PR is like is like the military. You start very young, like a private, and rise up to the ranks. Mm-hmm. You don't come in as a senior guy. And so that's what I did. That was my pitch. I called Edelman. I called all these big firms. And sure enough, I got about two or three hooks um, that said, oh, you're right. I could use your expertise. Hmm. Oh, what do you know? We, we are pitching a defense client right now. Why don't you come in and help us get it right? Uh, and it was great to have somebody on the team. I remember my first pitch, in-person pitch with a company called Kongsberg, which was a, is a Norwegian defense manufacturer, amazing company. And they make the Crows, the, the remote weapon stations we used to have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we still have. Yeah. Uh, and they were competing for the next contract. So they, they wanted to hire Edelman. And Edelman brought me in, and I helped translate all of their pitch into a military mindset and understanding. Yeah. And and it's one of the, the key. It's really interesting right from the start. And so they brought me the they brought me the um, the pitch. It was real heavy on weapons and blowing stuff up and stuff. I said I said you you don't understand. The Crows is not a weapon system. The Crows is a safety system. It's mm. designed to keep soldiers alive. It's so they won't be in the 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 the, the hatch getting blown up. They'll right. be inside the vehicle on a remote website. I said you've got to emphasize saving soldiers' lives. And by the way, at the time I knew the Army's number one issue was dealing with TBI uh, and, 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 and the, the many injuries of war. So, so the crows solves one of the army's biggest problems. That's, that was my pitch. We go in and, uh, we're like the third agency to pitch and the American lead for the Norwegian company, he goes, it's, it's great. That you guys brought scout comms with you. It says a lot about you recognize, you don't have the expertise. He goes, but before you start your pitch, I'm just going to save you some trouble. If you're here, if you're here to sell me on how we make weapons and we kill stuff, that's not what I do. What my job is, is to save soldiers' lives. <laughs> and, and the design guy's like elbowing me. I'm like, yeah, well, that's why you freaking hired me, dude. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and the lead from Edelman is a great guy. I still work with today, believe it or not. At least wow. he, he, he turns, the, he turns the, the, the client and goes, well, I got good news. That's what we're here to talk about, saving, saving American soldiers. Put his bitch down and we won the contract outright. We walked out. They called us like three hours later. That's amazing. And so that that's such a valuable lesson to me is that there is a place in the world for someone who speaks military right. and translate it to a world. And, and so that's what I did. So that was that's how I started in many ways continued. And, and eventually we took on veterans work, which ended up being all of my work within, I mean, within three years, all of my work was somehow focused on veterans issues. So I just dropped all the defense stuff and focused on veterans issues. And that's what we did. We helped companies like the Home Depot. We helped companies like G, uh, GE speak to the veteran market, um, do good for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And, uh, and what that looked like. So that's, that's, I, I still do that today. I, that's how I got, that's how I joined the Lincoln project. They wanted to focus on veterans issues and they needed somebody who spoke that language. So I, I did that for the Lincoln project to eventually become the executive director, which was out of the blue, but here we are. Yeah. We're going to talk about that too. Cause yeah. I think it's, it's incredible the line that you got yourself where you're at today, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the lessons you learned in the early days of scout comms and what you did. We talk about this in every episode, but Tell me a, a lesson that you learned or something that you did where you fucked it up so bad. You're like, this could have scuttled everything I worked for. Oh, uh, there's that's a long list. Uh, and, uh, yeah, like as entrepreneurs, <laughs> right? We screw up a lot of things. But I mean, there's there's always like that one thing that you look back on and you're like, man, if uh, I would have done that differently, boy, that would have been, saved so much headache, money, time. Anguish. Well, let's, let's start with just money. Let's do that yeah. real quick, right? So, yeah. you know, one of the things I I... I wanted to be a bigger company than just me, right? So, so I kept forcing myself to grow a little bit and looking for more money and 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 to find a way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I ended up accumulating debt, um, unnecessary debt to to do that. 
Yeah. You know, and so so we ended up having a debt burden, which in the end, which in the end, which in the end, pretty much tubed the company. <laughs> you know, so in retrospect, I think I'd done really well the first four or five years. You know, only growing as I got the money in the bank to grow, right? And then and then at the at the six year mark, I had a really good year and got cocky, and said, you know what, I'll take on some debt, and and grow. Uh, and then, and then, and then we hit a downside. So that debt ended up funding the downslide, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And then I got more debt, and then it becomes this this do loop, right? So, so in in retrospect, the probably the, without question, the mistake I made was trying to grow uh, unnaturally, mm. and, and that's different than a lot of people. A lot of that is like grow, grow, go, yeah. you know, take on funders, and but it was a PR firm, and, and the challenge with PR is you can only work as hard as the hours you could put in. There's no sure. there's no tools you sell. There's no markup on it. It's 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 people doing hours, right? Um, um, and so nobody's going to invest in that. There's nothing to take. Um, that was that was definitely a screw up. Um, we we also you know we we did we we, we made mistakes. I, I, I uh, we we once one of my one of my colleagues, a wonderful human being, didn't know something was secret, mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 spoke to someone about something that actually was still secret, Oops. and that we lost an entire client from that, which was rough. Um, not her fault. You yeah. know, it, it, you know, I, I take the blame for that, that I, and I always try to be the guy that no matter what happened, I, I was, I stepped in front of the bus and, and took that, took that hit. Um, yeah. but, uh, but you look back, you go, ah, if I'd done it differently, but yeah, I gotta be honest with you overall, I mean, scout comes, we, I think we did it right. We, 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 stayed focused on our mission. Uh, we, we stay focused on our benefit corporation mission. Um, we were B Corp, which is a do-gooder company. And, and I'm comfortable with that. Uh, in the end, the market shifted and I didn't react fast enough to, you know, when, when Trump came in, um, which is a whole other discussion, but the, what happened According to the laws of physics, was under under Mr. Obama, there had been a very heavy focus on veterans and military family issues. There was the joining forces in the right. White House. There was yep. a heavy that time in our country it was a heavy focus on us. And then when Trump came in, our dynamic changed the society where other issues became prominent. Obviously, there was the, the women's issues. There was the Black Lives Matter. So companies also lost their focus just on veterans. And of course, the right. Trump administration didn't do anything you know, around, around the veterans community. So, so you saw this downturn in the, the corporate giving and the corporate focus on it. And, and I don't think I reacted fast enough to that. I, I think my market was shifting and I was hoping I could claw on and hold on to pieces of it as it shifted. And then, yeah. And then it was gone. Yeah. So yeah. I definitely did not pivot fast enough. Um, it's interesting because you know, you and I've had candid conversations around the space and, and there are PR firms out there that are focused in on veteran companies Um, but, but are really focused on like, let's get you on Fox news. And that's not really the answer, right? Like that's not, that's not something that people, I mean, veteran companies are going to get on Fox regardless because that's sort of their, their niche, but like, it's not certainly what they need help with. And so certainly part of the plethora, but getting the message, right. You know, telling your message in a way that you own your message. I mean, I, I constantly tell people that it's like getting social media, right. Um, it isn't necessarily clicks, you know, it's getting it in front of the right people. Um, it's, you know, being impactful. I, I think we, we were very good at being impactful as, a, as an organization that perhaps others weren't. What do you think veteran business owners get wrong nine times out of 10? We suck at firing that without, without fail. Yeah. The number one thing that I was bad at to this day uh, and I see my peers do is we're very bad at firing people because mm. you, know, you come in the military 
And they tell you there are no bad soldiers. There's only bad leaders, right? Mm-hmm. That literally was a, a thing I was taught that, you know, cause, cause you're giving these soldiers, you can't fire them per right. se, right? right? Unless they're criminal. Right. So, so you got to train them more. And if they screw up, you train them, right? You literally make them go do pushups. Right. So, so you get this mindset in the military of, well, there's no bad employees. I just have to train them better. And I'm going to tell you a secret. There really are bad employees. <laughs> you know, there, there really are malicious people. Yeah. There really are people who are malevolent. There really are people who are incompetent, truly incompetent. There really are people that lie about their resume and there really are people who are just malcontents. And so recognizing that quickly and saying, okay, this is a cancer with my organization. Uh, I hate firing, but you need to go. Um, was something that really hurt me. Um, cause I had some, now I was very blessed. I had very few people that would even consider doing that, yeah. but the few that I did that had to be let go and, and, and few of them were malevolent, not, none of that, but like, just not good, not, not good at their jobs, right. Well above their pay grade or their experience levels. Um, and, and I waited too long to get rid of them and hurting the company, yeah. um, and hurting me. And then, and then just weighing on you as a, as a CEO. So I, I without question, we suck at firing. Yeah. And I talked to other veteran leaders, they say the same thing. It's like, it's just like this mindset, like, oh, you know, I, if I just trained them harder, like, no, really, it's just a horrible person. Just fire them. Let them go. Yeah. Here, here's what I saw running Patriot Bootcamp and then going on to, you know, helping things like Operation Code and others is yeah. that we suck at branding as well. Like yeah. our personal brand of yeah. identifying our skill set, what we're special at, and then focusing in on that rather than you're like, for me, I deleted Twitter two years ago because it it caused nothing but heartache and just yeah. headache for me. And, and it was because I didn't recognize that my personal brand was having an impact on my business brand. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And oh, so yeah. talk a little bit about that, how you, how you are able to help entrepreneurs really focus in on that personal brand part. Well, it's, it's hard. And I think you're right with that. I mean, who am I to say? I mean, I, I would argue you could make a very good case that part of the reason my business went away was because of my very outspoken political positions. <laughs> I, I literally had, I had people tell me straight to my face that my board will not allow me to hire you <laughs> because we will not be allowed in the Trump administration. Like, oh, sure. okay, that's pretty direct. You know, I was yeah, like, well, yeah. sorry about that. Um, I was very outspoken, my personal beliefs, but that's just, but that ended up being my brand, right? And to this day, it is kind of my brand. I got sure. like, however many followers on Twitter now. So, um, but you're right. We also are, <sighs> but your, your job is also PR and publicity. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. totally on brand for you. That is my brand, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's become my, you know, telling, telling yeah. it like it is telling that a man is, is my brand. That's and, right. And those who get that, get it. Yeah. Um, but you're right. A lot of our peers don't understand, uh, what they're saying or what they look like and, and, and what that means. And, and again, it is, it is about owning your story and owning your narrative effectively. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we do a good job of that. Yeah, yeah. Too many of us go in the military thinking, well, I'll just get promoted. I'll do the right thing. I'll be recognized. I'm not understanding that it, it won't be. And mm-hmm. in the business world, it certainly won't be unless you tell it effectively and, and demonstrate it to to clients and and to customers. But that's no, a very good point. I know I, and it, it does. It stretches to all the brands. It stretches to your corporate brand and how you tell your, your corporate story. Yeah. If you were sitting in front of an entrepreneur right now, just thinking about starting a business, what's the one tip you would give them? understand it's not glamorous, <laughs> you know, that one of the things that frustrates me about like, like the boot camps and the, and the entrepreneurship programs is they, they get these speakers come in who are on their A round or B round or C round. And, you know, they got the investors and, and I just, it was funny, you know, who used to be a good about that was a uh, bunker labs, DC mm-hmm. would always have me, they'd have panels with those guys. And then, and then they'd put me on there. Emily would put me on there too. Cause I'm like, yeah, that's all bullshit. <laughs> you know? Cause you had knives at your businesses, you know, that, look, nobody's going to invest in your effort bakery. You know, nobody's going to invest in your, 
you know, soap business, right. Or, mm-hmm. or your PR firm. Right. And which is what most of us are doing. Right. right. So you have to have a real, you got to take the rose colored glasses off and, and realize that entrepreneurship is, 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 is grunt work. Um, I remember I was in one of those classes and a, a woman, uh, a retired NCO was like, well, you know, I'm really worried about my work-life balance. And, you know, how do you make sure that happens? Like, don't be an entrepreneur. I mean, I know I, nothing but love, but I had a, a work-life balance eventually three or four years, five years in, but, yeah. but if you think you're going to, you're going to have to hustle, uh, in those early days, you, you've got to hustle because no one's going to put money in the bank, but you. Uh, and so if you think you're going to have that, that Aloha Friday weekends off 30 days, leave a year life that you had as a soldier, um, as an entrepreneur, you've, you've really got a shot coming for you. Um, yep. you know, and so I'm very critical of those folks, you know, Oh, we, we're closing the store down for a month because we're all going on vacation. Like, yeah, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> cause you know why I'm not coming back to your store. I come back three times as closed. Cause you decide to take the day off. I'm not coming back. You get yeah. three tries. Yeah, yeah. And so, so my advice always is, you know, go in with wide, eyes wide open, make sure your family understands what's happening. And I was very fortunate. My family was very supportive. I tell a story, this uh, anecdotal story of, you know, when I first started the company and we were struggling to get off the ground and we were, because I, I started in uh, November, we were going into Christmas and uh, things were tight. Um, so tight that at one point I actually cashed in my piggy bank. Hmm. Um, and I had, I had like a big jar change, you know, and, and mm-hmm. it was 80 bucks and I cashed the 80 bucks in and bought food for the family on Saturday. And then Monday, my very first check came in that had been on hold. It was close. It was really close. Wow. But I remember my daughter, Morgan, who's now 24, climbs in my lap and we're talking, we're getting ready for Christmas. She, she goes, dad, when we're well off again, I'd love to get a new computer. <laughs> you know? And I said, well, the, the statement has two really big key points. One, the faith that we will be well off again. <laughs> and two, and understand we weren't, you know what I mean? And yeah, so yeah. Uh, I was fortunate in that sense that at least I had a family that was, was supportive of the effort and understood that I was working in the basement trying to make totally. things happen. So so I do believe it's a, it's a team effort. You have to understand that there's going to be some sacrifice involved being an entrepreneur, but the payoff's great. Now, yeah. you know, and, and the payoff may not be money. The payoff may not be prestige or, or speaking engagement, the Forbes 500, you know, event, it, it, it could be something else. It could be, it could be like when we work for one Warrior project and for eight years, they've been trying to get the law changed so that the VA could offer, um, help, help birth assistance, um, reproductive services, um, IVF, in vitro fertilization. And there was a law from 1992 that the VA could not provide funding for that. DOD could. And so what we had was we had wounded warriors getting blown up. And while they were at Walter Reed being told, hey, look, before you get medically retired, if you and your wife are thinking about having kids, you should do that now. And they're like, I just lost my legs, bro. I, like, that's the last thing on my mind. And then sure enough, three years later, they want to have kids and they can't yeah. uh, through, the, through the government. And so for eight years, WWP have been trying to get that changed. A coalition of 16 nonprofits have been trying to get wow. that changed. And we came in and in one legislative cycle, uh, with, uh, we, we stormed the hill with some wonderful couples, uh, with the right messaging and we convinced hardcore, you know, anti-abortion legislators that, that I get what you're saying about your, your abortion stance, but you're, you're making soldiers suffer. Um, you can't say you're pro service member and they're, and our veterans were wounded and then turn around and say, well, you can't have kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and the funniest one was one of my wives, that group, um, a couple who had mortgaged their free home that they got to pay for in vitro fertilization. Mm. Um, her, my favorite thing was she's like, she brought the newspaper from the Washington Post there and she threw it down on a congressman's desk. She goes, ma'am, I understand your position, but look here, the red panda or the panda at the zoo is pregnant from in vitro fertilization <laughs> paid for by the government. And I said, we're letting pandas have kids and, <laughs> and you won't let me. Wow. And, and, it, and you should have seen this lady's face. He was from Alabama. And she was like, 
she had nothing. Yeah. You know, and oh, by the way, Congress members could have in vitro fertilization through their health care plan, but our service members couldn't. Of course they could. And 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 in one legislative we slated. So I didn't get paid a ton of money for that, but what a and and to this day, one of those couples um sends me pictures of her kids and their birthday and she calls them Fred's kids, which is weird. <laughs> but her and her husband had twins. Wow. Um little That's cute amazing. little redheaded twins that are now four. Um through their VA, you know, paying the PA, VA paid for it. So yeah. that's the kind of stuff you sit back. And so things went awry. The, the company, yeah. the pandemic hit, it, it didn't survive the pandemic. I, I, I had had enough at that point. My PTSD got the better of me. Um, but we were able to accomplish some really remarkable things that I treasure um, from that experience. So it may not be, it may not be the big house or the money or the, the fancy car. It may be knowing that you made a difference for one couple. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. We did a um, similar thing in Operation Code. We got uh, the Forever GI Bill changed. The rules changed. Right. 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 And so right. I totally relate to that because now right. before you couldn't do it, uh, you couldn't use your GI Bill for unaccredited you know, right. schools like a code school. But now through Vet Tech, which we got pushed through, um, now they can use Vet Tech, which schools can get accredited. And then, yeah, it's it's remarkable when you when you get to be a part of something like that, that ends yeah. up changing the life of people, it's wildly rewarding. It is so right. much fun. Um, right. There's yeah. no way not to do that as an entrepreneur. Even if you're not a social entrepreneur like we were, and we were both social entrepreneurs, yeah. but there, you can do that. You know, you can change a customer's life. It does matter. Business does matter. 100%. Yeah. And then, uh, one one other thing I want to talk about, the you know, sure. you talked about the, the hard thing about being an entrepreneur. You know, I did a talk at the Denver Patriot Bootcamp, and it was called Surviving Startup Failure. My, fail- my startup had just failed. And yeah. it was really just like, you know, this is great that you're all starting a business, but this is what it looks like when it doesn't work, right? And I had a whole blog about it, but I had veterans, combat veterans, stand up in the room and say, if my company ever died, I I have thought about hurting myself. Like, that's that's profound, right? Wow. Like, like going through and seeing things that you see in a combat, but then your company fails, and that's the thing that pushes you over. And I don't think we spend enough time talking about the mental health piece of being an entrepreneur and you, you hit it wow. right on the nail, right? Like your yeah. family goes through this with you. And if they're right. not prepared, if you're not preparing them, then forget about it. We had, I had a CTO at Brightwork, amazing guy, love him to death. But I remember when we got into Techstars, he went to his wife and, and we had to move to Chicago for three and a half months to go through Techstars. And he turns to his wife and he goes, we're going through this program, whether you like it or not. And I didn't know he had told her that until after the, you know, we postponed him everything about the company. And I went, man, it makes a lot of sense why she flew to Chicago every other week. She was trying to keep her marriage together because the entrepreneur was like, eh, I'm doing this, whether you like it or not. And that's certainly not the Yikes. way not you want to do that. Thinking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, it is a mental challenge. I mean, I, I, I did go through it. And, 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 and the thing is, too, is the CEO or the, or the founder, your mental health affects the company. So as yeah. I dealt with my PTSD, fine, kind of came to an head, came to, came to, came to you know, a lot of ways, but it affected my marriage, affected my business. It affected my business. It affected my way to leave my business. Yeah. And um, it was a perfect storm where the business was, was facing a little change in the market. I was facing a, a severe mental health crisis. Yeah. Uh, and and the market changed. So it um, my my number two guy was deployed to Afghanistan. And it was all at the same time. Yeah. And so, it, you know, it's not easy. No. And and I, I put I put a lot of pressure on a lot of people. I actually hired my daughter uh, to be my assistant because you know she could go, hey, you know what, you should answer those emails you blew off all day. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, and, you know, because she was really good at kind of getting me straight. Yeah. And she understood my mental health. And 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 that's a and, and then letting it go. I mean, in the end. 
you know, you can't quit when you own the company, you can't quit your job. Mm-hmm. I screwed. I quit. And you can't walk in and say, I all y'all, <laughs> you yeah. know, it doesn't work that way. It's, nope. I had six employees. And so when it came time that the, there was no question that scout comms would not survive, that there was no way to keep it going, that, that the money was running out. The, the pandemic had, had completely killed our new business. We were over leveraged on nonprofits. We were really struggling during the early days, especially the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, donations were down. We had one cut us off right away. Mm. Um, there was just, it was just like, I call it the laws of when, when something is like uh, immobile and won't change. I call it the laws of physics. Like that rock is going to come down that hill. Yeah. <laughs> you can't yep. change that. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no stopping that rock. And that's where we were. The rock was going down the hill. Uh, and so I had to make the decision to close it down. It was, it was, it was gutting. Sure. Uh, it was, it was very, because you put so much of your personality and, and who you are, that title, I'm CEO. Do you know who I am? I'm CEO. I had glasses that I'm CEO, bitch. <laughs> and, and you put so much of your personality in that and, yeah. and, and your persona. And then for me being an, an advocate in our community as well. And yeah. I had somewhat of a position in our community as I was being invited to speak at events and all, and all that was tied to that, that title. Yeah. Um, so saying, you know what, it's not working and, and I'm not going to save, no one's going to knock on the door and save us. There's no investor. There's no more debt to take on. Yeah. It is what it is. Uh, and, 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 and making that transition to actually quit was, was, um, was very difficult. I think it was more <laughs> in many ways, more difficult than my divorce. Uh, yeah. you know, it was, you know, I put so much of my personality in that and, and, and blood, sweat and tears the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, to tell my employees, I gave my employees 30 days notice. And then, then I worked really hard to try and get them to, I think, I think in the end, every single one of my existing employees got a new job through the efforts that we did to talk to our partner companies and, and, and clients and, and got them all a couple of you worked for clients for a while. Um, clients found other ages to help them find other firms. Uh, And so, um, but that is, it's a gutting thing because yeah. you're right that the the being an entrepreneur, being a startup, uh, is is so much of your personality. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it is. really is like a divorce because you do lose that community. It's funny you, know, you talk about divorce, like all your couple friends leave you, right? <laughs> and in many ways, uh, I I did. I lost. I don't get invited to cool conferences anymore. You know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, oh, Fred, will you run this panel? And that doesn't happen anymore. But yeah. uh, but in many ways, that's that's for the better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this has been great. I, and I know, uh, you know, you're not doing the scout com stuff anymore, but now you're at Lincoln project. Um, you know, talk a little bit about how it compares to, to be doing what you're doing, the advocacy work that you're doing. It's important work, right? I mean, you guys have been front and center to a lot of things that have been (laughs) happening right now. Uh, you've been on TV lots lately, like talk about, you know, what the work that you're doing and how it compares to what you did as an entrepreneur. Well, you know, the way it came about, I, I had known Steve Schmidt. Uh, I have, have known him since 2005 when he worked for the president or vice president. Uh, he came over to visit us in Iraq, and I got to know him there. And we ended up doing business together with Scout. So, ironically, it came from ScoutComps because he was at Edelman for many years, and I did. I was a subcontractor for him, uh, and so we were good friends. So, when when it came time to close it down, I reached out to him and said, "Hey, look, I'm shutting down. What do you think? I, you know, just mentorship." Um, yeah. I had I had run a field hospital in New York during the COVID early part of the COVID crisis. And he'd seen a story about that. So we've been talking because he saw me on the news about that. And, um, now he just calls me up. He's like, oh yeah, you're going to work for us. I'm like, okay, doing what? Like a veteran stuff. Like, okay. <laughs> um, so it was, it was, it was exciting for me to kind of take all those lessons I'd learned as an advocate. Like I mentioned the, the wooden warrior project efforts and stuff, but turn that to a very naked political thing, you know, which was, you know, convincing our fellow veterans and military members that there was a better way for our country that, that um, even knowing you'd always, we were all very conservative. I was conservative that this, this situation we were in wasn't necessary, wasn't able. So, so we did some really bold things. A colleague of mine, Kurt Bardella had the great idea to actually place ads 
in Stars and Stripes and the Military Times, which was people thought we were crazy. Like you're putting anti-presidential, <laughs> you know, anti-Trump ads in the newspaper, you know, the military. Yeah, yeah we are, matter yeah. of fact, you know, and and we organized veterans. Like I organized a, a council of veterans, which was not just veterans, though. You know, each campaign had the, all the generals. I didn't want that. I had um, I had a gold star mom. I had a blue star mom. I had a wounded warrior. I had a disabled veteran. I, ran, I was an entrepreneur, by the way, in a restaurant out in LA or Long Beach, you know. Our, our veterans panel was really of the community. And that was very powerful for us as far as running our ideas by. And then, of course, the cool things I got to do, which is, you know, doing an ad with Sully Sullenberger um, when he was really angry about the, the the story that came out that the president at the time called us all suckers and losers and stuff. And so Sully Sullenberger did an ad with us. I did an ad with the Vinmans, uh, Rachel and Alex Vinman have become good friends of mine. Um Hell, Mark Hamill from Star Wars did an ad for me at the end of the campaign where, you know, we were really we wanted to highlight the fact that there was a lot of talk of not counting votes that came in after Election Day. Right, right. But of course, absentee ballots, military absentee ballots do consistently come in after Election Day. And so absentee ballots, absentee voting came from the military. It actually started during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did an ad basically telling that history um, using Mark Hamill as our voiceover. And mm-hmm. so it was really a really cool experience. And then after the campaign, Georgia, I, I volunteered to kind of help help run our Georgia operation uh, for the runoff there. And then after 1-6, the dynamic changed even more. Um, my, my colleague, Sarah, who'd been the executive director, was was just worn out like we all were. And, yeah. and uh, I stupidly volunteered. And <laughs> and, uh, and they said, sure, you could be the executive director. And, and here I am uh, getting ready to roll out of that after after nine months um but it's been it's been interesting right it's a very different world but in a lot of ways it's similar yeah um it for what i've been doing it's about telling a story telling a message again that matches the right people in the right way and that impacts them and moves them to action and that's what the end we're trying to do is trying to move people to action right now it's defend your democracy it's 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 recognized that there's there's dangers in our democracy right now one six is a significant danger to our democracy and what that means um rolling back our voting rights is a significant danger to our democracy so so I think I'm, I'm in many ways still doing what I did before. I'm still still fighting for what's right. I'm still fighting for our constitution. I, I think I'm on the right side of history. I, I yeah. I mean, I you know, this isn't a political podcast, obviously, but I think no, there's not. there are just there are just so many interesting things happening that are, you know, when we when we go back ten years, twenty years, thirty years from now, we're gonna be just who what what side were you on uh, on right. as far as like what was right. And, um, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of conservative friends who are just privately just very angry at everything that happened on January 6th and how it all came about and how just nobody's being held accountable. Right. And yeah. We can, we can right. spend all day talking about this, but it's just right. so frustrating. But um, it is, yeah. and in the end, and it wasn't a political thing. It was there was violence. There was violence at our capital. Our own capital. Police were beaten. Yeah. Our capital was. Our capital was. I mean, they rubbed feces in the walls of the United States Capitol. That's I mean, insane. I don't, I don't care. I don't care where you sit in the political spectrum. If you're not horrified by that, I don't, I don't know why we're talking to each other at this point. And, no, and, and so, so for me, it's always been about right. You know, people, I, I get hit all the time from our fellow guys. What about this thing that Biden did, or what about that? Hey, didn't you badmouth Biden in 2012? Like, yes, I did. <laughs> um, but that's not the point. The point is. What kind of country do you want to live in? Right. Uh, and where would we go? Is is do we live by rules? Do we live by the rule of law, or do we ignore the rule of law in pursuit of our own political interests? And by the way, I am positive that Mr. Biden's going to do things politically and take stands on issues that I completely disagree with, and I will call him out for that. Uh, but that's not the point, is it? The point is, I also know that Mr. Biden and the Democratic Party right now will adhere to the Constitution. 
Uh, but they will they will fight tooth and nail to get us back to rules and rules and norms and traditions and and I, that's all I want and you can I would love nothing more than to argue tax policy, well, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But that's not what we are right now. Right now we're should we attack our capital or should we not attack our capital? And that's kind so of many, where we are. Yeah, there's so many bigger implications than just the United States at play here that I think people don't understand. That's yeah, it. yeah. Fred, uh, like I said, we could do this all day long. And yes. I love, always love talking to you, man. Likewise, You're such a good, we can Yeah, we can't spend this much time not talking to each other. But Agree. thank you so much, my friend. Love you to death. And um, let's do this again someday. Likewise, brother. Good talking to you. Thanks, Fred. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.